Are you ready to challenge your rhetoric? Today is Wednesday, February 24th. My name is Sherry Roberts, and I'm your host. I'm challenging the rhetoric. Welcome to the show. This morning was a really big day in Oregon Federal Court. 16 of the 24 Oregon standoff defendants were arraigned. I'm going to fill you in on some of those details and get you up to speed, but I do want to let the listeners know that tonight's show is not specifically about the Oregon standoff, like many of my shows over the last several weeks have been. Um, I'm going to be talking about me and as well as my guests about different aspects of it, specifically activists, those activists there, activists all over for a whole lot of different causes. It really doesn't matter what the cause is because the the problem is kind of singular, and, and, and we're going to talk about that. So um, as far as the Oregon standoff people go, one thing that I really want to zero in tonight is we all heard them, and this is long before it was down to four people at the refuge. Many of the people that went in the live streams, whether it was Pete Santilli's live streams or their own or their own statements uh, in, in, in texts online and stuff, they were speaking about the certainty that violence was going to be, uh, you know, wrought against them. It wasn't like an if. It wasn't like, you know, let's play scenarios out. They were just absolutely certain that they were going to get slaughtered. Um, I've kind of been in those shoes before, and those that know me for a long time and have followed me for a long time, they know that. But I have a slew of new listeners, and I just want to give a shout-out to a lot of the people that have started following me, particularly on Twitter and Zello uh, over the Oregon standoff, because you're going to learn a little bit more about me like we've been talking on Twitter. But here's the deal. Their rhetoric, once we found to the final four, wasn't just that certitude. Now it was this hysterical thing. And, yes, there were some funny moments there, unfortunately, in David Fry's live streams. But the hysterical that I'm talking about is, you know, truly someone's being hysterical, okay? Something's wrong here. Paranoia runs really deep in today's activist world. I know this firsthand. I, I, I myself have lived it. I've experienced it. Um I'm not sorry for it because it's allowing me to have these sort of conversations, which I do think, to some, can make a difference. Uh, tonight's documentary filmmaker, Dylan Avery, uh, and our other guest, Alex Salazar, who's a former LAPD narco cop from LA's Notorious Rampart Division, they're going to be joining me, and we're going to talk about this because in their own rights, they're activists too. And so we're going to talk about whether those fears that, all activists have if they're if they're based on any sort of reality or if they're just some projection of everything that they have just kind of weighed their own mind with. Uh, I'm going to bet it's a little of both. Uh, I will, you know, it's whose fault really is that? We're going to talk about that too, and we're going to really, really kind of try to find a, a foundation of where. Where do we go from here as a country of people that care? Because I think we all care. We might care about different things, but ultimately we all care. So tonight it's Good Cops, Bad Cops on Challenging the Rhetoric. So before I dive into everything and bring the guests on, I want to give you the details that that allow me to help you participate with me and us tonight. So during each live show, you can interact on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash challengingtherhetoric.news. You can find me on Twitter where I'm tweeting from at CTR News Feed. 
Uh, tonight's hashtags, uh, like always, are CTR, but tonight we're using good cops, bad cops. I know it's a little bit of a long hashtag, but I, I think it really covers what we're talking about tonight. If you'd like to call in to the show to participate with us and ask a question of me or the guests or just make a comment, you can call 646-787-1790. If you do call in, be sure that all your background audio is turned off. If you're calling in to express a differing opinion, I, I'm a-okay with that, uh, whether it differs from mine or the guest or someone in the chat room or, or something I wrote or whatever. That, that's cool. But you need to be respectful. Otherwise, I'm going to drop your call. I pay for my airtime, and I don't pay for that. So a quick reminder, this show is rated PG. That's a reminder for myself, my guest, and anybody that should call in, as well as those in the chat room. And remember, if you are listening to an archive, you are not going to be able to get through on any of the phones or be able to chat with us. That chat room can be found at blogtalkradio.com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with Sherry Roberts. My name is C-H-E-R-I. Everybody knows how to spell Roberts. Once you get there, click on show number 18, which is this specific episode, and the chat will appear beneath that slider. And if you're already logged into the page and you don't see the, the chat, just hit your refresh button and then scroll down. It'll be there. Uh, if you're having problems with that, then I'll notice it too here shortly, but it looks like the chat's live. The rules of engagement for the chat room, FYR, are kind of the same as if you call in. You need to keep things respectful to me, my guests, and each other. This is a dialogue. This is not a debate. So no personal attacks or any kind of trolling is going to be tolerated. I have no problem censoring you right out of here because that's not what I and my guests are here for. So let's just kind of get this party started. You know, real and imagined fears, the dark side of activism. Oh, my God, I've been there. I've done that. And it's it's uh, simultaneously a lonely place at the same time you're surrounded by lots of people that are of like mind. So most who have known me, you know through my show and my writings uh, that I've really been an in-the-streets and an in-your-face activist for almost two decades. And I'm here to tell you that there's no amount of preparation for a peaceful event that is going to, in fact, guarantee any kind of peaceful event. That's just rule one, number one. And I, and I wish somebody would have taught me that or at the very least warned me. I didn't, I didn't have that luxury that I'm giving to you right now. So all the new or younger people that are starting to go and speak out on causes, that's rule number one. It doesn't matter what you think you're going into. There's going to be not just a few. There's going to be a whole lot of people that have completely different agendas. I, I remember being disappointed time and again at events, uh, not just small local events, but I have traveled to New York and D.C. multiple times and thinking I'm going there for one thing, and there's so many different groups, so many different individuals, so many different ide ideologies and opinions, but even more varying agendas, and most of them actually weren't my own. So marches and these other type of rallies, they're, they're made up of, these diverse individuals, like I'm saying, and it's but it's not just at events. It's this really odd divergence of activist groups everywhere that are creating what's becoming more and more and more of a toxic stew. Now, I can only speak on activism in the modern world within my lifetime, and I've been doing that for at least 20 years, um, or or almost 20 years, uh, steady, and then uh, a little while, a few years before that, and then stopped. I you know I, I became complacent, like most Americans, and, and that's problematic too. But here's the deal. Um, all these different types of people that, that were made up of this toxic stew I'm talking about, this thing that I've experienced, 
people come together and they, they unite for a cause, okay, this this cause, this righteous cause. But somewhere into it or after it, we realize that these people that we've attached ourselves and aligned ourselves to, they're really not such a compadre after all, you know, and this this really happens all the time. We we talk about those of us that fight different governmental and, and you know, and infringements and stuff, we always talk about systemic things, but this is really a sy- systemic thing in in every activist community that I've experienced, and there's just been so many, because there's so many different reasons that people are pissed off and present for whatever, you know, whether it's at an event or on a forum or on social media, it really doesn't matter. The information that's filtered into these movements, it can easily and, and rapidly and most often becomes really polluted by the activists themselves. And the activists, one of their biggest fears within their movements are infiltrators, agent provocateurs, whether there's someone paid or someone not or someone just seriously and severely countering something. Um, but I can tell you from my own first-hand experience of doing this so long, we are our own worst enemy most of the time. But when I'm talking about all that pollution going in with the information that's filtered into the movements, when you add the isolation that comes from all this confirmation bias that technology has allowed us. Okay, you hear me talk about narrowing our worlds all the time and having that little pinpoint through the microscope view of everything that we have just put in our world and then and then shoved everything else away. And that becomes really quite extreme. And it seriously, seriously can cause, and I know you know people out there like this. I used to be so off the deep end, but everybody knows somebody like this where you don't quite understand where they're coming from on something because they're normally rational and level-minded, and this just sounds so crazy, whatever it may be. But this kind of extreme confirmation bias, narrowing of our, our view and our world, it can make even a steady-minded individual falter. So on that note, it's time to bring on my first guest, documentary filmmaker Dylan Avery. Uh, We're going to talk about Dylan's film in a moment because that is one of the main reasons I brought him on. I am so proud of this piece of work, and I think that it has some really great power in it. But first, I really want to talk about some psychological problems that are within law enforcement across the country and as well as the psychological problems with activists across the country. The film is going to touch uh, quite a bit on the law enforcement psychological aspect. So first, Jill and I, we're going to talk about the activism psychological aspect of how, you know, everything works because activists across this country, there's problems just as much as there's with law enforcement, and that's really a lethal mix. Dylan, welcome back to the show. Hey, Sherry. Thanks for having me back. Hey, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I'm so excited about uh, the, the documentary and, and the trailer going live last night on RT, and I want to talk about that, but I, I think because you have been an activist in your own right and in many ways even bigger and brighter than I have um, and experienced all the good, bad, and ugly, but I think that you have done it so long that you also have a different perspective than maybe we had when we were like so deep in it in the early days. We spoke before when about, um, you know, Michael Rupert after his suicide. Uh, if you're not familiar with Michael Rupert, please look up Michael Rupert and the film Collapse. 
and most people are actually very familiar with that film, but there was a paranoia that kind of comes or seeps. Maybe it doesn't come with it, but it seeps into it. And, and you know what I'm talking about, Dylan? Can you explain that from kind of your perspective? Um, the the Rupert incident and just kind of like what led to it? Well, no, about like this, this weird... Um, rightful paranoia, don't get me wrong, There's, and we're going to get into all the real reasons to be scared or afraid of, of things and people, but yeah. like that other no, thing yeah, about, yeah, no, you know, how, like, yeah. And everything that led up to that, essentially. Right, right, right. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. It's, it's like you said, it's this culture of paranoia, and I think that, you know, you sometimes can allow yourself to get sucked into such a certain degree that you literally are past the point of no return, and you feel that civilization has reached this point where there's no turning back and you're kind of doing yourself a favor by getting out of it early. Um, so, man, I mean, what has it been, like, two years since Rupert uh, passed away? Almost yeah, two years? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be um, two years uh, in April. Yeah, because April, that's right. Um, yeah, he, he took his life on my father's birthday. And, you know, my father, as most people that have been following me know, he just passed away last week, But uh, which was a weird thing when it happened. Uh, we were singing happy birthday to my dad when I got the notice. Um, but, yeah, two years almost. So uh, it's, I don't know, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's, I suppose, if nothing else, kind of a cautionary tale in that that is pretty much the end result of allowing yourself to go that far down that certain path that I think that, you know, no matter the cause and no matter how deeply you get invested in it, eventually you do need to take a step back for your own sanity. Um, and, I mean, you know, because we, we find ourselves in the, the uh, I don't want to say the anti, yeah, I guess the anti-police brutality movement, you know, we find ourselves in that and we, you know, I, I guess the the point that you were trying to make earlier that I always try to circle back on is that all movements are fallible because um, movements are made up of people and people are fallible. So, I guess there really is just kind of a tipping point that every movement makes that it either really does something big and changes the world or just kind of fizzles out. And I don't really know where we stand on the current movement, but uh, I hope that it hasn't started fizzling out. And I don't think that it has. I'm just saying, you know, I guess it's a matter of perspective. It is. And, and, and that same perspective is also subjective. Um, It's, it's strange because most people that have, um, that know me, that have followed the work that I've done with the Oregon standoff, are very surprised at the stance I've taken on it. Um, I'm not quite sure why they're surprised because I'm 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 an open book, you know. And but we have, you know, you've met these people, you've dealt with these people all the time. We have these people that 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 claim everything's a hoax, or everything is a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist, and uh, you know, uh, our, our mutual friend Scott Ford, you know, calls them uh, conspiracy pornographers, which Twitter is loving that uh, phrase. I've been using it a little lot through the Oregon standoff thing. But you know, what I'm talking about Dylan. Can you kind of? So it's not just me explaining this to the listeners. I have a lot of new listeners that are very interested in this aspect of how. The mindset. So let me give you a quick setup. Oregon Statoff, we have all these activists that are they're, they're quite different than you and I and a lot of the things that we've been involved in, kind of, only about a third of them. And we're really talking about the, the people that really claim to be like ranters and, and, and against the BLM issue. But then you have another two-thirds by actual statistics out there that are 
you know, they're the John Ritzheimers. These are the militia people that, that you know, have been in the service and come out. And, Dylan, you know, about 10 years ago, in, when we were really active in the movement, there were many activists that had, you know, it was kind of a campaign we all went on back in the day that we were going to try to run for offices and become law enforcement and kind of infiltrate the system to work it from within. So now you got to wonder, right? Yeah, no, you, you do indeed, and I guess you have to wonder if that's the next step is to try to get some kind of legislation or, uh, I don't know, I mean, it, it's tough business it's an election cycle, so good luck getting anything done. Right, but so, so the paranoia, though, that leads people to feel that they got to be deceptive in those ways, how, for you and your experience and the people that you had to deal with over the years, and, and let me tell the listeners, I haven't mentioned this this show, Dylan's been on a couple times, Dylan and I kind of go way back. Dylan's actually been in my home. Him and Alex, who will be on a little later, are are both personal friends of mine. I've known them for a long time. Um, You know, we have experienced some really strange things over the years, uh, independently and together, that are these paranoia things. And so how, if you were going to give an activist advice, Dylan, no matter what their cause about the confirmation bias and how they narrow their world so much and that's all they're living versus seeing outside of that, what would you say? Well, I mean, uh, you know, at the end of screenings, we always advise people, you know, don't take our word for it. If anything, the first thing we want you to do is go home and look this up for yourself um, because we don't want you to take everything at face value. The whole point of this is to question everything, including everything we just told you um, because some people will go home and be like, well, I agree with some of that, but I disagree with some of that, but wow, I found this whole treasure trove of information over here I didn't even know about, and I'm really glad that these guys encouraged me to be open-minded. Whereas, you know, if we end the screening and tell everyone, all right, so everything you saw in the movie is pretty much gospel, and that's pretty much all you need to know, and buy the DVD. Uh, but no, it was, listen, you know, this is just one part of a very large puzzle, and we just encourage everybody to go home and do their own research. Um, so I think that that is probably the most important thing going into it. Um, and, uh, you know, it. It really depends on the subject matter of the movement and what it's tackling. Um, I mean, because obviously the the 9-11 movement and the movement for police accountability are um, both similar and different in many regards. Um, So it's tricky. I mean, you... I I guess there's there's the same level of uh, possible extremism that can come with both of them, where it's easy to... Um, you know, every officer involved shooting is bad, and, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. There's, It's tricky because, obviously, the loss of a human life is a bad thing, and no one should ever have to die. Um, I mean, I don't know. It's tricky because there's some people that, like, when there's immediately an officer involved shooting, you know, people that just take the Facebook and, you know, that's the police, and they killed another person without really even knowing anything about the incident. Like, I mean, sure, if the person was walking away, with their hands up and were shot in the back with an MP5 submachine gun, then yeah, absolutely, you know, F F the pigs. But if you know nothing about what happened and you're automatically taking that perspective, then, I mean, you really kind of are just being an extremist. You know what, Dylan, you just said something, um, and and we we didn't discuss this in advance, so I really appreciate that you said that because I've been saying this for a long time, and people... You know, I am a journalist. Take take this podcast aside. I'm a journalist. And I really get upset. Like, let's use Oregon standoff when LaVoy Finnegan was shot. Before anybody has any actual evidence, any actual proof, 
There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people out there saying he was shot in the face. But then he has an open casket, you know, funeral. And then they say, oh, no, he was shot in the head, and they reconstructed it with plastic. But that's not an official statement either. And then the the, the truck was riddled with more than 100 bullets when it was actually pepper pellets, um, you know, foam pepper pellets. And it's like when you're doing research, when you're telling people to ask questions, okay, when you're telling them to to question everything, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Everybody that knows me long term knows that I do not think that the government is our friends. It is up to us to mind them, to watch them. But when they're when they're doing research, as you say, Dylan, can you give them some words of advice about how just sharing things and saying, Hey, I'm researching this, what do you think? But that is not how somebody investigates something. Yeah, and that's really it, is you have to do your, your due diligence. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's really tricky. And again, it really depends on what kind of movement we're talking about and what kind of information we're dealing with. Well, it does. So let's jump over into black and blue. So for the listeners, let me tell you, Dylan Avery has been working for uh, at least a year. Uh, it's probably about two years or so now that he's really been working on this documentary that's amazing. The trailer just went live on uh, RT Russia Today last night, and it is phenomenal. Uh, I I challenge anybody to watch this. I don't care what your perspective on what happened in places like Ferguson, Missouri, or Baltimore, Maryland, or or Oregon, or anywhere else. If you have any kind of concerns one way or the other, if you think people are, like, you know, bashing cops or or you think that cops are – bashing people this is a this is a trailer and then a documentary that that you need to see dylan i know that you never expected to find yourself making this specific documentary but you have poured so much time and so much heart and and just real skill into this um can you tell the listener a little bit about what black and blue is well it's um basically a film that started two years and a couple weeks ago when i went to a rally for Kelly Thomas, he was the homeless schizophrenic man that was basically beaten to death by six Fullerton police officers. Um, The trial went on for a long time. Um, A lot of us thought the officers were going to get convicted, and they were eventually not convicted. So there was a first rally um, outside the Fullerton Police Department on, I think, January 18th. Uh, A bunch of people were arrested. So I was on the road driving back to California with my best friend at the time, so I couldn't make it to that. But I was informed about a rally coming up on February 8th. I attended that, and while that rally was was more of a candlelight vigil at that point, uh, while it was winding down, literally, as it says in the trailer, this man named Ruben just kind of saw me standing there with a camera and kind of pulled up his phone and was like, have you heard about Bobby Henning? And I was like, nope, who's that? And... Here I am, two years later. Um, if I hadn't gone to that rally, and if that one person hadn't decided to strike up a strike up a conversation with me, I don't really know where I'd be right now. So I found myself um, reaching out to a bunch of people. Um, the first of which was almost certainly George Thompson in Fall River, Massachusetts, um, man who was arrested for videotaping a police officer. Um, through George, I got in touch with DJ Alzi. Through DJ Alzi, I got in touch with his uncle, who was a retired Freetown detective. Um, started reaching out to more and more people. And then Ferguson happened. So it's really been a, a two-year roller coaster. And the 
sense of relief that I felt when that trailer finally went out on Monday was indescribable. Um, and I was really looking forward to, you know, taking the day off tomorrow and just relaxing. But unfortunately, I caught news of George Thompson passing away. So I was just going to ask you to tell the listeners about George because that's very, 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 very sad. Yeah. Thankfully, he... Um, Keep it real. He not only got, yeah, he not only got to see the trailer because I had an early screener up for some of the family members, so he got to see it because I was like, I was racking my brain. I was like, when was the last time I talked to George? Oh, no. I was like, I couldn't think straight. Um, and uh, I checked my phone, and I had a call from him two days ago, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I talked to him on Facebook, and I sent him the link, and he called me and was, like, really excited. And I was like, how you doing, man? He's like, yeah, he sounded fine. He was good. He was waiting for the deal on his food truck to go through. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the trailer went out the next day, and... I didn't hear anything from him, but I didn't think anything of it until the next morning when I woke up to a text message. So um, we're still trying to figure out what happened. Um, we all want to believe it's just natural causes and that there's nothing suspicious to it, so we'll all hope that that's the verdict. Um, so I'm sure it is, you know, but, I mean, at the same time, uh, the guy's cell phone was confiscated, the video was deleted while it was in police custody, and no one was ever held accountable. Um, and... I don't know. I you know, I I really I can't I can't really say anything more. So I'll just say that you know we uh, I, I miss him a lot already. I, I imagine you do, and and what you just said is really important for the listeners to understand that regardless of what anybody wants to think on any one given thought idea as far as the terminology conspiracy or conspiracy theory goes. I just want to remind everybody that even according to the courts themselves, what's going on here in Oregon with 24 defendants already with more to come, not counting Clive and Bundy and all the charges going on uh, for Nevada as well, which are which are even bigger than, than the charges here. Um, you know, conspiracies are real. That's what they're charged with. Okay, Watergate was a real conspiracy. Manhattan Project was a real conspiracy. Manhattan Project had more than 120,000 people involved with it that most of them had no idea what they were involved with in doing because it's all very compartmentalized. And it doesn't matter how small or how big conspiracy might be, the studies uh, show the, the Washington Post just came out with an article this week, and they were talking about the psychology behind why people believe about Scalia's death and conspiracy theories. And there have been studies with, between psychologists and um, social scientists for about 10 years or more now. And they have found in these studies that it's kind of a spectrum of how people think about conspiracies. But overall, almost everybody almost everybody believes in at least one conspiracy. So whatever your conspiracy is, it doesn't matter, I don't need to know, but whatever your conspiracy is, if you want people to listen to you or care about you, then you need to give them that same consideration no matter how wild you might think that their potential conspiracy is as well. I mean, wouldn't you agree, Dylan? I would. I mean, I think that the most important thing to have is an open mind, both towards your own opinions and other people's. Like, I, you know, like I often said, like, I can I can see other people's perspectives when we talk about 9-11 and when we talk about the class of the buildings and all that, 
minutia that I just got tired of talking about because it's like, look, I, I can I can see your point of view, you know, it's like it's it, it's fine, you know, people are going to believe what they're going to believe, and I'm done trying to change it either way. Um, but I mean, I don't know, it's really tricky. I mean, it's good to have conviction, and it's good to stand up for what you believe in, but at the same time, there is a certain point where you have to not jeopardize your relationships over something you believe in. Yeah, I, I completely, completely, completely agree with that. Um, I think that, you know, I think I think what happens when we're talking about this prolific sharing, specifically in social media, um, you know, y- you've experienced the same thing. The minute anything big or small happens in this world, there are sometimes a small handful and sometimes too many handfuls to count of people that within seconds, if not just minutes, are proclaiming it's a hoax or a false flag and, I do believe, and and I could be wrong, maybe this happened before, you know, I was born, and and maybe it was just as prolific in social media shows it that way. But what I see is that there is this common denominator of just sharing anything and claiming anything without knowing what the hell people are talking about, but at the same time not realizing how much that turns off people and there's a you know there's a portion of those people that they don't care they just want the clicks the likes the shares and there's another portion of people that just doesn't know any better um and i and i think that people like you and i and alex when he comes on here in just a minute uh understand that but dylan can you tell people you're going to stick with us when when alex comes on because alex plays a very pivotal role in your documentary but can you tell people how they can find your uh trailer for the documentary it's posted up and i'm going to post it again but um can you tell them how to find you on facebook yeah, uh, if you you can either type in facebook.com slash blackandbluefilm or if you just go onto YouTube and search. Uh, there's unfortunately a lot of things on YouTube called Black and Blue, which, you know, that'll happen. Um, so if you search usually for Black and Blue extended trailer, that should bring up, uh, that should bring up the one. Okay, so what's going to happen now, Dylan, is I'm going to bring Alex on in just a second. I want to... Um I, I want to read uh, an activist tip. This is uh, other than the fact that we there's no guarantees that anything that we do is going to be a peaceful thing because we can't control anyone else. But this is a, a citizen journalism tip uh, for all those that think that you're being a reporter or a researcher or some sort of an investigator in, in all your sharing. Uh, I tell people to set out to prove yourself wrong before you set out to reaffirm or reinforce any preconceived opinion or belief on any kind of story. Too often we set out to prove ourselves right, and in doing so we struggle to see the facts because we already set out believing that we have all the facts. Most often we don't, and if we try to prove ourselves wrong and we meet somewhere in the middle of that, we're going to be much, much closer to the truth. So we're going to get in, when I bring Alex and Dylan, we're going to get into the meat of what Black and Blue is about because we are going to talk about it, whether the listener likes it or not, because it is a real problem in this country. There are good cops. There's no question there. We saw them in Oregon. There's good feds. We saw them in Oregon. But there's still a whole lot of bad cops. We also saw those here even in Oregon, not in this situation, but just a few months ago, and that had to do with racism and people saying nigger in the department. So on that note, I want to bring in Alex Salazar. And Alex is, um, like I said, he's a former LAPD narc cop. He was with the Rampart Division, which is pretty notorious. This guy 
uh, he now has his own PI, you know, uh, the company, and he, he's working on cases all over the place, and he's he's pretty phenomenal. I, I adore him to death, and I'm really, really happy to have him back on. Alex, thank you for coming back. Hi, Sherry. How, hi, Dylan. How are you guys doing? Hey, buddy. Hey, man. So glad to have you. Um, you know, Alex, you're a real pivotal part of Dylan's new film, Black and Blue. And so what I want to do is I, I'm going to I'm going to go to you first, and what I want you to tell the listeners specifically, we'll get into the meat of the film, but I want you to tell the listeners specifically kind of how you felt in doing the film. Well, you know, it was just really a roller coaster ride from the beginning because when I was approached from Dylan, it was uh, right around the time that uh, the Ferguson uh, uprisings were beginning with the death of Michael Brown. And so I actually went down to Ferguson and I was able to give a play-by-play uh, shoot video of, of the confrontations uh, of the police between the protesters and, and I myself getting hit with uh, tear gas volleys. And, and documenting history, this, this time period where the whole country has, has now taken a different look at how modern-day law enforcement operates. So, Alex, when, when you were doing the film, did you ever have any kind of a, like a big deep breath moment, like, should you be doing this or not? Well, you, you know, I, I, I'm curious, just, just like I think most people are, to find out and, and, and to learn about our system, about the way that it works. And so, yes, while, while I was there, I was frightened. I also wound up in, in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, where, where there was more civil disturbance. And, and I did ask myself a couple of times, but this has been uh, become my life now in, in this quest for the truth and in, in trying to talk about racism and trying to talk about police mental health and in trying to help law enforcement become a, a, a better uh, part of human life because it, it affects so many lives, uh, not just when they kill the person, but the kids, the mothers, the dads. Uh, there, there's people that are afflicted with, with these demons forever from having had these negative contacts with law enforcement. Dylan, what was it like to come in contact with Alex as you were beginning making this documentary and then the two of you connecting and how it evolved from there? Well, uh, not to flatter him too much, but Alex was pretty much exactly what I needed in that, you know, I had spent a couple months interviewing all these people about their experiences with the police, but the one thing that I knew I needed if I was going to even attempt to make a fair and balanced film uh, was to interview former cops. Um, And uh, this uh, journalist by the name of Sherry Roberts put me in touch with him, actually. So uh, (laughs) that was pretty awesome. So, well, you know, yeah, I you met, know like, Dylan, I met, I met Alex, and what made sense for me to connect him with you is I knew you had begun starting this film. And then completely outside of that, I met Alex because he was working on a case, I believe it was in, in Northern Cal, it was Andy Lopez, a kid that had been shot and killed by cops. And it seemed like the two of you kind of needed to at least meet. So I, I'm glad that I made that connection because, again, I'm really – Lord, with with the trailer, I cannot wait to see this documentary. Um, but Dylan, can you tell the listener about like truly? Let's talk about the violence, okay? Let's talk about. I'm going to give a setup to the listeners who've been following specifically because of the Oregon standoff and my friendship with talk to her Pete Santilli. Okay, so 
when Ferguson was happening, Pete Chantilly desperately wanted to go to Ferguson. He didn't make it there. He did make it to Baltimore, though. But he had actually wanted me to go there. And um, I wanted to go there. I just was not, A, in a, in a good position in life to be able to make that happen. But also I wasn't quite sure I wanted to go there with Pete Santilli because he was uh, quite different than I was in, in how I present things and do things. But with what happened in Ferguson, Santilli, okay, so let's talk about shock jocks and, and disinfo and misinfo and just info for the in- entertainment and click purposes of it. Pete Santilli sent me a ton of what he called secret documents uh, about what he believes was getting ready to go down in Ferguson. And these were documents talking about actual fire weapons, okay, which is against the Geneva Convention. Okay, but these were military documents. They were very legit, but they weren't secret. You can go to the military's own sites and find them. And I'm like, Pete, I'm not going to pump a story about this because uh, this has been there for quite a while, right or wrong. All that, all these documents don't mean this is what's happening now. But there were, in fact, Advon trucks out there, the satellite trucks. There were, in fact, the Stingrays out there. There were, in fact, DHS out there. There were, in fact, militarized Darth Vader-looking police out there. At the same token, Dylan, and, and you made a phenomenal movie about something extremely important that we are not going to neglect because it is absolute fact. But at the same time, there's also activists that are just as they go into these things with this aggression and attitude, too. And so we need to figure out how to make this better. But there was real violence there, uh, and it didn't have to be somebody that was provoking it. Uh, Dylan, can you can you speak on that? Uh, I mean, wow, where to begin? Um, you know, again, I myself, I didn't actually get to go to the Far- Ferguson or Baltimore personally. Uh, but thankfully, I had a couple people, uh, uh, as well as Alex Salazar, who is obviously my main source on the ground of both of those cities. Um, so I really got to experience a lot of that secondhand uh, through the footage that I got my hands on, um, through the stories that Alex told me, um, and others as well, of course. Um, so I don't know. I mean, in terms of the, the the violent culture endemic to law enforcement, I don't know, that might be something that Alex is more equipped to comment on. Um, I don't know, because he's got the experience. Alex, do you want to address that? Alex, do you want to address the the violence? But with the reality, because we're going to talk about racism as well, Alex, so let me me caution you in your answer first. Um, We're going to talk specifically about some very real racism going on, but let's talk violence in general against activists. It didn't matter what color they were there. Uh, correct. Uh, and I was right in the middle of them, too, uh, shooting the video. Uh, it was very surreal. I thought I was in Afghanistan or in the Middle East, uh, the way that this was being handled. Um, the people were merely trying to voice their, their opinions. And, and of course, uh, this response uh, elicited an angrier crowd uh, that made it uh, escalate at, at certain points. And, and so this paranoia, this fear that you were talking about was very heavy among us at that particular time, especially uh, when I was on the ground and I was out there working uh, with, with some cop watch uh, people uh, in, in trying to see what was exactly happening here. And, and so, yeah, I, I was part of that group there that was able to feel the brunt of, of this uh, excessive force that was felt upon uh, the people of Ferguson. Dylan, uh, whether you used it in the film or not, what was the most like profound moment of video that you witnessed uh, putting it together? Oh, God, of the whole film? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh God! The Even most if it didn't make the, the film, film, I mean, like, what, what, what was a piece of video that just was like you were just like, yep, it just reinforced you doing this. God, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of different circumstances where that happened. Um, a good example is the I think first there's time a song that, that says "God Only Knows." <laughs> well, I mean, I think the first time. Um, it might have been the first time that I really got to sit down with Liz and Everett because um, we, draw, you know, they uh, were always visiting down to Southern California from where they lived up in Northern California. Um, so for, yeah, for the first time actually getting to sit down with Liz and Everett, uh, that was pretty intense. And, I mean, that was when I realized I had the beginning of my movie. Um, and... Uh, I don't know. That's it's unfortunately a really tough question because I do have so much intense footage and I don't even know how much of it is actually going to see the light of day. And even the stuff that I really like, I just might have to cut out. Um, so Dylan, what made it, you pick and choose between your footage for the film? Well, I mean, it's tough to say um, because aside there's obviously... From, aside from, you know, film quality, what what was it about the film that made you feel that this is riveting or profound or meaningful, whatever, to be a part of this? How long is the film? How how long do you, do you envision it being when all said and done? Well, I mean, uh, for a long time while I was editing it, I was trying to keep it under two hours, um, but... Uh, the more I look at it, and especially now with this recent development with George, um, I don't know because I'm actually in the I'm actually in the process of kind of re-editing the entire film um, because to cut the trailer because I I recently kind of upgraded my whole editing system. Maybe this is boring nerd stuff for people, but basically upgraded from Final Cut 7 to Final Cut X, uh, threw a bunch more RAM in my system and everything, so um, ported over a lot of my old projects to Final Cut X, and I used those um, to make the trailer and kind of reorient myself with Final Cut X. So now that I've done that, I can kind of dive back in. And there's really a lot of tools in there that make it easy for me. to. It's, it's not like I have to go back in and resync up a lot of footage because thankfully Final Cut X can do that for me. Um, so I'm actually kind of excited to throw all this footage at X and just see it sync it all up and I can just kind of watch it and not stress out about having to link things back up. I mean, again, I can import all my old work, but I don't know. <clears throat> that was a bit of a tangent, but essentially I... Um, the point of that is that, you know, again, especially with recent events with George and just um, I took some time away from the film in general, like a month, month and a half to really not look at it or work on it. Um, so now that I have somewhat of a fresh perspective, it is nice to kind of dive back in. Uh, so, again, I, I was hoping to keep it under two hours. I'm still hoping to keep it as close to that as possible. But, um, I mean, we're we're talking two years of a, a countrywide revolution. So I don't want to sell myself short in order to fit some kind of arbitrary runtime. So I guess it really just depends on how good the film is and uh, how much, um, how fluid of a pace and what kind of tone I can maintain throughout the entire thing. Um, but thankfully, I actually, I got some interesting feedback from Everett earlier. Um, he said that he showed it to, I guess, uh, a friend of his that kind of knew what happened to Liz, him and Liz, but not really. Um, so their response to the trailer was, not only, wow, that looks really amazing, but the other response was, and yet I still don't really know if I know entirely what it's, what it's about, which is strange because people are pretty much talking about the cops more or less the whole time. Um, but right. still, for someone to watch, yeah, for someone to watch that whole trailer and still be like, I still don't know what it's about, like, wow, okay, well, that's technically good because, again, the, the chief complaint about most trailers is that they give away too much. So 
I guess, if anything, I gave away just enough. Well, you know what? Yeah, and I I think so. And, and when I when I saw um, the, the trailer, the official trailer, the day before yesterday, uh, when you sent it to me, I, I told you it was so dramatically different than the the teaser trailer you put out uh, earlier last year. And um, and I felt it was much more profound. Before I jump over to Alex real quick, Dylan, is there anything that you feel that you're still missing that you still need to to complete this? No, Whether God, it's no. more funding or more footage or more anything. No, no, I, I, I just need to finish the thing now. I, I, I like, I, the, the shoot actually, the trailer opens with, with the storage set with Liz and Everett. I just shot that a couple of weeks ago, um, and that, and I got back from that, and I was like, that's a wrap, that's it, that's done, uh, no more shooting. But then, with what happened yesterday with George, I ended up having to call Alzi and had to pay him for the shift for bingo that he was going to do. So he had to call in on bingo and drive an hour up from. Cape Cod to Fall River to cover city council because a bunch of people came out and talked about George. Uh, so I thought I was done and I thought I was taking a day off yesterday, but prime example of just how I can only dictate so much about this project. So um, It seems very fluid. It seems very fluid still even. I mean, we still have a lot of different unrest, a lot of governmental angst. Uh, going on around the country that I that I that I personally think is very valid. Uh, conspiracy theories aside, uh, the government has done a whole lot of things. Uh, Alex, can you talk from your perspective as an ex LAPD cop, uh, regardless of the division? Can you can you tell the listeners about the systemic problems that you experienced? Tell them the years that you were in the PD, and then tell them what you experienced. There. So let's let's talk about not only the the culture, okay, and and we want to do this kind of quick, but the culture within the PD, but also how the psychological aspect, what you were coming home with, one of those endeavors with your contract between couples, and all of that, and why. Right. Well, you know, it's it's certainly been a journey here for me to try to kind of come full circle and, and understand everything uh, that I went through here as a police officer uh, within the uh, LAPD, Sherry, uh, because I came on to do the right thing. I wanted to help people. Uh, that truly was my, my intentions here. Uh, but in the end, you know, I became just as corrupt as the system itself uh, for what it is. And so my, I started in uh, 1989 after leaving the Air Force, the United States Air Force, where I did uh, security police work. And uh, the first place I went to was uh, the Rampart Division, and that was straight out of the academy. And, of course, Rampart was immortalized in the movie Training Day back in 2001, Best Picture. And it was about this police station that I happened to work at. And uh, I actually knew and, and uh, worked with some of these characters. And, and it goes into, into really a labyrinth of, of uh, things that were going on and happening uh, within this highly respected police department uh, that was run by Daryl Gates, which was responsible for the, the creation of uh, Crash, uh, for uh, the SWAT teams uh, of today, and, and basically you know, trying to portray uh, the law enforcement of, of America at that time as red, white, and blue. But there was a finisher aspect to it, and, and uh, in working with some of these people uh, that I worked with, uh, you know, human beings just like us, uh, a lot of them, they harbored uh, white supremacist attitudes. And, and so me being Hispanic, I actually, uh, you know, had a father, father-in-law who was white, Caucasian. I, I ended up uh, marrying uh, his uh, daughter. And, and uh, you know, he introduced me to this subculture where they referred to the black people as fun people. 
And and the acronym FUN is fucked up nigger, uh, which is what they use to, to, to laugh and, and to show their disdain. And and so for me, this was something that became a subculture. I became uh, very privy to it. Uh, I also uh, learned that there was a lot of mental illnesses. And and for me, you know, to come here and, and to talk about this today, I, I'm not here to cast stones or, or to attack anybody in, in particular, because, you know, when you point the finger, three come back at you, right? Uh, you know, that that's what always happens here. And so Dylan has uh, uh, done a masterpiece of work here uh, to describe uh, various incidents across the country. I happened to be there. Uh, you know, I, I, I became like a crackhead or something like that, just addicted to this, you know, rush of having to be there to see for myself okay, history. Okay, but wait, let's, let's, uh, let's was, wait. Uh-huh. Alex, pause, pause. Take a breath, right. dude. Let's make sure the audience right. knows that you are not actually in reality any kind of crackhead, <laughs> okay? Because that's okay. the problem. You know how Sure, Sure, Sure goes, oh, I'm going to take that sound clip. I'm a crackhead. <laughs> Yeah. No, no, no. Well, well you, you, I, I had to learn what was happening, what was going on here, uh, because I knew myself that what I had experienced in LAPD, and I wanted to see, was this really happening in other places? And sure enough, you know, I saw that same mentality from having been a law enforcement officer, having belonged uh, to the prestigious LAPD, and then seeing other police departments across the country who are handling business the same way as, as usual, which is the, the systemic problem. So, Alex, can you tell the listeners kind of uh, a little bit, not not just your PI work, but really focus on uh, the work that you're doing about helping current and former law enforcement people with the psychological problems, including including not just on a one-on-one personal level or group and rallying level, but also the things that you're involved with with regards to trying to make some actual systemic changes for psychological um, you know, testing or whatever along the way, much more than is happening now. Right. Well, I, I think we need to get over the denial uh, that PTSD is not a problem within law enforcement. There are many officers that are traumatized uh, from having been out there dude, and, and seen the work. I don't uh, mean to interrupt uh-huh. you, but dude, just for the listener's perspective, I don't think there's mm-hmm. a single American citizen that does not have PTSD since 9-11 happened. So go ahead. Right. Right. So, you know, we, we can say that with these guys who are day in and day out, they're looking at murders, especially if they're in these hardcore neighborhoods like Rampart, 77th Division, that some of them may become sociopathic. And and that is the problem here that what we're seeing here all over the country where officers are being arrested more so now on, on video after denying and lying about what has happened here and and so this has become the problem uh, that lays before us where, you know, Dylan has documented this uh, through his numerous interviews of people. I, I've tried to help him out here also with my little twisted warped view of the world uh, by having gone out to some of these places like Selma, uh, being there with the person who filmed the death of Freddie Gray, uh, Kevin Moore. I, I had the chance to be with this man and, and to talk to him and to see the blighted areas of, of Baltimore uh, just decimated and, and, and left there to, to just rot pretty much. And, and so this is what we've created. And, and like I said, it's, it's just exciting to be able to share with the world uh, this this beautiful work that, that that Dylan has done. Dylan, any final thoughts on on the film and and a message you want to impart kind of to the world? Uh man, you know I'm just uh, like I said, I'm I'm excited and relieved to have this trailer out. It's nice to be able to at least breathe for a day or two and kind of think about it with a fresh perspective and dive back in and 
put it together and get it out to the world somehow and do justice for all these families and now for George as well. Yeah, for, sure for George. Again, keep it real, keep it real. Um, yeah, hashtag no, keep it real. Let's make that trend. Yeah, Let's make absolutely. that trend. Hashtag keep it real uh, for George. Just, George just, is a, a wonderful just, guy. Just, just be real. <laughs> just be real. Sorry, just be real. I don't know why I keep saying keep it real. Just be real. That's right. um, let's, let's, let's make that trend on, on, on Twitter and wherever else. Hashtag just be real. Dylan, uh, thank you very, very much. Alex, do you have any parting things to say, not just from your perspective of, of what your career has been and what it is now and, and your experience in the film, but just as a real person who has been, as, as these patriots keep saying, boots on the ground and these activist things, uh, as far as the paranoia and the over-aggression, because do we not get what we give as well, right? We have to not pretend that, that some people do attract certain things. Right. Well, one of the things that we're working on in trying to address this overall problem of police brutality is identifying the fear factor in which officers who are out there in the streets, you know, uh, are, are operating under this uh, this mental duress that they feel like, oh, if I have to, I'm just going to shoot. And and so this ideology of shoot first, ask questions later uh, seems to be a, a pervasive mindset where, where a lot of these guys, they know that they're going to be protected by the police unions and by legislation that allows them to commit state-sanctioned murders. And and so this has continued to be the problem. Uh, we need to uh, readdress this. Uh, we don't need to be attacking. We need to talk calmly about the matter. I think uh, Dylan's perspective brings that to, to the table uh, so that the DOJ can see, hey, you know, we come in peace. We don't want to see a full-blown riot. We don't want to see more Americans rising up uh, with, with fear on their minds, paranoia as, as a part of their DNA now because they're thinking that they're going to die. And, and so uh, as, as we work through this, you know, we want to have peace and, 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 you know, be able to do things for people like uh, George Thompson here who, you know, uh, he, he couldn't have imagined that he would see the light here of, of what had happened, what he had gone through. And just his passing here, you know, it, 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 it means something to me because it, it's, I feel blessed by this man. Even though I never got to meet him, you know, he was, he was something else to continue fighting for, for what he thought was right. So that's kind of my little two cents. And, and, and thank you again, Sherry, for all you have done in, in connecting the dots, bringing me and Dylan together and all these people. You know, you played such a big role in this. And, and your show is, is one full of truth. I, I admire you. Keep on doing the great work, girl. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you so much, Dylan. I really appreciate you coming on the show with me tonight. Um, you guys have been wonderful supporters of the show, and I hope to have you back on again really soon. Yeah, thanks right. for having us, Thank you. Okay, so here, here's the deal. You know, we have talked about sharing, and, and I've written a couple things that basically boil down to when sharing is not actually caring. Everybody, and I and I can say that, everybody that I personally know, and we're talking thousands and thousands of people on this level, that, that consider themselves an activist, a huge portion of them consider themselves some sort of a, a researcher, okay? If nothing else, a researcher. And as they find any given thing on the Internet, and again, it doesn't matter what the cause is, okay? As long as it's confirming what they want to speak 
on what they're feeling. For whatever reason, that's what they believe and think. And, and sometimes they're real, sometimes they're not. But whatever confirms that, that's what they're sharing. Most of the times, even some of my own work and my own followers, my some of my own readers will share something just because it's from me, just because I wrote it, because they don't have time right now to read it. So they'll read it later, and sometimes they never read it at all. But they'll share it right now because I wrote it or I shared it. And I don't, I mean, yeah, I like the clips and shares just like anybody else that does this whole indie media thing. But at the same time, I don't want you to click and share unless you have an opinion on what I'm putting out there. I want you to think about it because it's really important. When we just share things willy-nilly and say, oh, it's part of research, I'm investigating this. No, you're not because I challenge you to talk to any real investigator and any real reporter. They don't share anything until they're sure, including people that they actually work side by side with. And that's fact. That's truth. And when you're sharing all that stuff, all you're doing is polluting your very own beliefs, your very own ideology. And yes, there are people out there that do that intentionally uh, because they want to pollute. And there are other people that still do that intentionally because they want to pollute because it's going to bring them attention for whatever reason. And if that's who you are, you need to take a step back from your keyboard and everything else for a minute because you are harming people's lives. People that trust you, people that follow you, people that believe in you and what you say because you say it so truly. You're hurting your country. You say you care about your country. There is not an activist movement that, that I have been a part of, and there is not an activist moment that I have been a part of, and it's been too many to count people, but there's not any of that that I've been a part of where the people involved, regardless of what I agreed with, with coming together and seeing their agenda was not mine, we all still cared about our world, okay? And we have to keep caring, whether we're talking about activism and how we go about it, whether we're talking about constitution and how it's interpreted. Because the constitution, just like the Bible, is completely and 100% open to interpretation. People try to say that the constitution is set, you know, it's a supreme law, it's set in stone. No, it's not. That's why we have amendments. Amendments are there because the Constitution, regardless of what quote-unquote constitutional lawyers and constitutional sheriffs and people that so deeply, truly believe, and I can't stress that enough, they really believe that, and that's a psychological problem we have to address before condemning, that the people of the Oregon standoff, they truly believe that what they did was legal and right. I don't like what they did but they believed it. So how do we move forward from there as people that care? We really need to ask our own selves that before we even ask anybody else. I really don't have an agenda here 
other than to talk with you and maybe sometimes talk at you. I get that. But I want to talk about things that matter in a way that I hope matters because I I hope I'm talking about them from a, a different perspective. And I know because I've been involved with many of these movements. I am a conspiracy theorist. I am somebody who has been and sometimes still is paranoid about things. But I am sane and I care and I'm a pretty regular and pretty cool person and I think a lot of people already know that. So again, where we go from here, challenging the rhetoric, Dot news, check out the website, share, share, share. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Wednesday.